beautiful. You are listening to episode 54 of the Africana Woman podcast. Chulu is my name. I am a writer, branding coach, entrepreneur, and founder of Africana Woman, the premier network of African women across the globe. You can learn more about me or the visionaries at AfricanaWoman.com. This show is the home of African women's stories. We share ideas, triumphs, challenges, and lessons from our perspective as African women. This library is a step to cementing our place in history. Her story, your story, is powerful. So we all know what happens at the beginning of the new year. There is so much hype and pomp about resolutions, goals, vision boards, manifestation and strategies, and it goes on and on. (laughs) However, many people fall off quite quickly into the new year. Why is that? Many experts will say it is because of not having good habits or systems. However, today I simply want you to consider that you may be out of alignment and your whole being is resisting what you are trying to accomplish. As you listen to this episode, I want you to reflect on what you can adopt to your own life to ensure that you get the results that you truly seek. Here is my conversation with Dr. Fatima Williams. Fatima Williams, PhD, is the founder of Beyond the Tenure Track and creator of the Genius Retreat, a goal-setting experience to help high achievers get off autopilot and set and achieve goals that matter. As a global speaker and coach, her professional development guidance has been featured in Essence Magazine, LMC TV New York, The Chronicle of Higher Education, Inside Higher Education, Scientific American, and University Affairs. She is the author of two books, The Professional Pathways Planner and Be Bold, Launch launch Your Job Search or Career Change with Confidence. She is a board member of the University of Virginia Alumni Association and advisory board member of the Zimmerly Art Museum Community Council. She loves living life out loud by exploring art, traveling to new cities, and being a dog mom to her feisty rescue pup, Ray. And guys, she is my sister. Yes. So excited. <laughs> Thank you. So excited to in. So, okay, so oh, where do we even start? Okay, um, Fatima and I met, uh, when, when did we start? Was that end of 2019? 2019? Yeah. yeah. Right? Oh my gosh. And we were in um, a mastermind together, and let me tell you, Fatima got my life together. Like, if I show you my schedule, I live by my schedule. It's got all sorts of colors on it. Like, she got me together. (laughs) So whenever I tell people (laughs) that I live by my calendar, it's all because of Fatima. Because she just... She got me together. <laughs> Very oh, can I on. tell you, that makes me so happy. Like, I think we can get, especially as high achieving people, we can get so like just deep into planning that we do it just to have like the color coding. But for me, it really is. I believe we have amazing ideas that God has placed inside of us, whether it's something that you want to do in your home or with your kids or at work. There's these things that we need to be that need to be expressed and that need to come out of us. And one of the biggest things that keeps us from doing that is like not being able to organize our time. And sometimes it's not because we're not organized. It's because maybe we're in a different life stage or we need a new way of thinking about how we arrange our time or what we say yes to or no to. So I'm glad to hear you say that you're like using, let you live by your calendar because it means that you're also living purpose. Like you're making room for purpose. So that excites me. (laughs) 
Oh yeah. I mean, just the, the thing of even putting yourself on the calendar because sometimes you're putting everything else on the calendar and you don't even, um, you're not even intentional about putting yourself on the calendar. I think was so, um, revolutionary for me. I was just like, yeah, I need to make sure that I'm making time for myself to recharge myself. Um, and even, um, you know, just everything, you know, um, something that I always remember you saying is, you know, giving your first to God, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so whether it's in your work, you know, at, you know, just being intentional about how are you actually utilizing all of your time? And I, I love it. I absolutely love it, guys. Oh. Um, so, okay, Fatima, what yes. is your favorite childhood memory? Oh my gosh. Um, I think my favorite childhood memory is probably visiting uh, a waterfall that was not too far from the apartment where I grew up in New Jersey. So my mom and I would walk there sometimes, but I really loved when my dad would take me because as a little girl, he would put me on his shoulders and it just felt like I could see the waterfall even more clearly. You know, I wasn't obstructed in view by any of the fences or anything like that I could really see. And so I just loved, I think that daddy daughter time of us walking to the waterfall and having our conversations about whatever five-year-old Fatima was talking about at the time. Um, but I love that. It's, it's one of like my mundane memories, you know, kind of an everyday thing, but I really love that time that I had with him. And I think just to be in beauty and the splendor of seeing like a, a gorgeous full waterfall, I, I just, it stands out to me. That is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Now you're from the States um, like you said, you grew up in New Jersey, but you found yourself in Durban, South Africa. How, why, for how long, what happened? <laughs> um, I like, even when you say Durban, my heart beats like a little bit faster. Um, and it was just a coming of age time for me. So I'll paint the picture for you. I was in undergrad, University of Virginia. Um, I remember sitting in my dorm room. And now when I see dorm rooms, I'm like, how how do they have like students living in these dorm rooms? <laughs> like, you know, our quality of life, thank God, you know, changes from when we were in school to adulthood. But I remember sitting in this like fluffy orange robe that I had and I'm eating Ben and Jerry's ice cream. And I'm flipping through study abroad brochures because I loved my undergrad experience, but I felt like there was just somewhere else I wanted to be, somewhere else I wanted to try and explore. And so for me, I mean, I I spoke Spanish fluently, still speak Spanish fluently, but everybody else was going, you know, France or Spain or some people who were more adventurous back then, it was Italy. And I was a, one of my majors was political science and I had a focus on, um, the continent of Africa and then also later Latin America. And so I just like wanted to see more at that time we were studying a lot about apartheid. So I wanted to really understand more, like what is life on the ground look like, you know, 10 years after that, right. Or 20 years after that. And so I found a study abroad program that um, was in Durban and it was like, it was a no brainer for me. It was a yes. Um, and I loved it. I mean, I, I almost extended my time um, to be there. So I was there for about six months. I lived in the dorms. So that was a really great experience for me because I got to meet other young women um, and I traveled by myself. So it wasn't that my full university or, or students from my university went, I went on my own. I was the only person I knew who was on the, the study abroad. Um, but it was a really great opportunity. I, I love immersive experiences. And for me, that was my first time out of the country as well. So now imagine I'm traveling. I think at the time I was 18, first time I'm an only child. So my mom is like, yay, my daughter's going abroad, but also like, where is she going again? What is she doing again? <laughs> but I loved it. Um, when I was there, I took classes in the law school because, you know, as a foreign affairs, political science major, that was what I did. But I, I just, I love the diversity of Durban and I, 
I also could see some tensions in like how we relate from, you know, Indian to color to black to white and even how that gets played out in physical space, right? So what spaces or locations around the city do people occupy or do they just, you know, enjoy to just, it was, it was a beautiful experience for me. It was tough. Um, it was tough as well. And I don't know so much that it was the international part of it. I think it was the first time I really understood that I could be read as an American. So when you're black and in the U S you know, especially from the U S right? Like I'm, my people are from the U S we're not um, immigrants to the U S. So, my experience had been as a black American, right? So understanding like how I am read as a black person, as a black woman, but to live in South Africa for that time and be read as an American um, was in a lot of ways unsettling for me. Not that I felt like I was African, right? Although there were a lot of those debates about, no, you're one of us. And I'm like, yeah, we, I'm, listen, I'm all African diaspora. Like, I'm, I don't negate that, but we do have different experiences based on our nationalities, right? And where we're rooted. But that for me was one of the tougher parts. And honestly, one of the first times I ever felt like I was a woman. So in the ways of like male to female subordination or male subordination of women, I, I don't think I'd ever felt insecure physically, like unsafe. Um, and I definitely had experiences of that when I was in Durban and, you know, maybe because my, my first week there, a young woman had been abused by her boyfriend in one of the dorms. And I think that kind of marked the experience because it was quite, you know, quite violent. Um, and it just colored the way I saw things and the way I managed myself through space, um, being groped on the street. I mean, that can also happen in New York. So I'm not saying this is just <laughs> Durban, but it was my first experience of like feeling and seeing these things firsthand. So it was a challenge, but also beautiful. I have amazing memories. Um, being on the beach, which, you know, Durban is great for that. A great boyfriend at the time, somebody I still keep in touch with. Fatima. Because <laughs> I was going to ask, do you keep in contact with anybody? And you just came out and said, okay. <laughs> yeah. And other, you know, other people, one woman has gone on to start like a vegan restaurant Ooh. in Durban and then now in Joburg. So yeah, I do. I do. It's beautiful. Have you ever visited since? I have not. And I have to tell you, it's, I, I have to. Yeah. I have yeah. to. Like, I need yeah. to lay eyes on these people that embraced me, that invited me to their homes, you know, that introduced me to their parents, took me on trips with them. Um, that we just shared stories in the dorm, right? I, I want to see that. And I kind of want to see where 18 year old Fatima was, right? What, what was I doing? I mean, I just remember that being such a coming of age moment, going to art galleries and art shows. Um, I did some of that in college at UVA, but it was very different and felt very cosmopolitan to do that outside of a university setting, but in real life in the world, you know? Um, so it really just perpetuated like my love of art and following art and the beach, you know, I was right on the beach and I love that. Um, so it was a really great experience. It was, I couldn't have asked for a better experience, maybe only to extend it longer. That's probably the only thing I would have asked for. Uh, yeah, that sounds so beautiful. Like I think in all of our experiences, there's going to be, you know, the challenging things and then the, the really, you know, amazing things. But I think that's what makes it all come together as, as that special moment that happened in your life. Um, so you have a PhD in cultural anthropology. What yeah. drew you to that? So for me, cultural anthropology, I hadn't heard of anthropology. I mean, I was political science major. I was African-American studies major. So I had two majors. Um, so I, I'd never, I, I just hadn't heard of it. But what I knew was when I finished college, I was like, 
I'm not done learning about certain topics. And one of them that really interested me was how people, like how we as people, society, manage like large political changes. But I didn't want to understand it just from like a political science framework. For me, political science felt very much about models and, you know, typologies and just trying to fit everything into very tight quantitative or qualitative analysis. And when I started learning more about anthropology, I was like, oh, wait, I get to learn about people within political systems And I get to do it from the perspective of people from the ground up. Um, And so that's how anthropology kind of came into my life. And I think, you know, probably Durbin had a lot to do with that. Um, So, you know, anthropologists are known traditionally, at least, to be doing work abroad from outside of wherever their context is. And certainly that's not the only way to do it. Um, I don't believe in like othering people, right? But that's one of the ways that anthropology happens. Um, but I wanted to also understand different blacknesses, if you will, different expressions of black identity. Even I'm black American, but I understand like geo sort of geopolitically and even like culturally how black identity or blackness in the U.S. gets like kind of just shared globally and at least traditionally has been like the idea of what we think of when we say black, everyone's thinking black America or that gets centered as blackness. And I'm like, there's so much going on in the world. Um, there's so many other ways of being black and I'm really interested in what that looks like and bringing that forward in my work. And so that's how I chose anthropology because I could be with the people, (laughs) whoever the people are, I could be with the people, not just with the books or with the models or the frameworks, but I could be with the people. I could understand from their perspective. I could be in relationship, really hear stories, observe. Um, and I, you know, get the opportunity to do that in my own context, but also outside of my immediate context. And so I say Durbin helped with this because that was my first time abroad. And it kind of opened me up to where else, like, where else could I be with these questions? And so after that, I went on to live in Honduras for a while. Um, and then for my dissertation, my doctoral research, I did my research in Colombia. So I lived in Colombia for over a year. That's interesting. I think, you know, I never really thought of, um, you know, when someone says, um, you know, black people and what, you know, what definite, what people actually define that as, um, and it's, it's true. I think there's sort of, uh, there's sort of, I guess, uh, a, a global assumption that it's always going to be the same for everybody, mm-hmm. but that's not necessarily, you know, the truth, uh, about what being black is and, why we put like a blanket statement over it um, when it can appear in so many different Mm -hmm. textures and nuances is um, interesting. Hmm. So since doing, when you completed your PhD, did you, what was your plan? What did you want to do? Uh, And uh, what did you end up doing? (laughs) That's a great question because that kind of, that pivoted me into like my next role. But, you know, so going into a doctoral program, especially in the U.S., doctoral programs tend to be very much preparing PhDs to return to the academy to do research and to teach, right? So it's very, it's, it's almost likened to like a closed society like the military. It has its own language. It has its own you know, kind of code of conduct. It's very insular in a lot of ways. And so I think that's changed more recently, like in the last 10 years or so, probably with the maybe economic downturn of 2008 that has shifted the university setting a bit. But traditionally speaking, the when you go into a doctoral program, you are saying, I want to become a faculty member of this thing, traditionally. So for me, that was the idea. I mean, that's even how, at the time, I chose Columbia because I was thinking, well, I knew I was going to do my, my work in a Spanish-speaking country somewhere in Latin America. 
And my decision-making was about what I was seeing, um, you know, kind of that I wanted to research, but also where could I see myself continuing to visit and revisit as my research would grow over the years. And so Columbia was a choice for me um, because at the time as well, I was married to a Colombian, Afro-Colombian man. So it also just kind of made sense from a few different perspectives. But as I got toward the end of my degree program, I'm like, model graduate student. I'd published, I'd presented at conferences. I had a postdoc offer from a great institution and I was interviewing for faculty positions around the country. And I'm like, you know what? I don't really like this. (laughs) I don't really enjoy this. Um, Academia started to feel slow. It felt sluggish. It felt like Mm. I couldn't be creative in real time. Can I ask you though, um, yeah. was it, was it difficult to come to that realization? Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And this is how, even in my current work with coaching and, you know, what I would go on to do, you know, after the PhD, I, I think it, it helped make me a really great coach because I understood the pain of leaving, not just you know, what did I study? But, you know, I'm thinking a PhD in the U.S. lasts six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years, depending on your field of study, right? Depending on how long you're in your program. So it's not a, you know, kind of a quick thing. Your identity is invested in it. Um, your networks, your relationships, whether peer or senior to you, there's a lot that's happening that really, again, this kind of closed system, you're in it. So think not just military, but physicians. When physicians decide they no longer want to practice medicine, it's like, what do I do with myself? You know, like, where do I go next? Or how do I parlay this into something else? Because your identity is so deeply entrenched in what it is you're doing. And, you know, so for me, I think that helped me and helps me now, even as I'm writing the book that I'm working on to really be able to like connect back with what it means to make hard choices, but choices that are really authentic, right? Because if I, if it was just a hard choice, it's like, no, I, I I'll stay, you know, the pay was pretty decent for by way of academia, how that goes. It's fine. Great institutions. No one was asking me to do any crazy things, right? It was, it was a good setup. It would have been a good setup, but I didn't feel right. Something did not feel good to me. I felt like I was forcing myself to be someone that I wasn't and that I was like hiding or suppressing personality traits and also like things I wanted to do that I, I I just couldn't see how I could easily do them from the academy unless like, you know, years down the road after being there. And I just, I was at a point where I was like, I I don't, I don't want to do this like this. Um, And so I made that decision and then began to kind of transition myself outside of the academy and translate my skills and try to figure out what the heck do I do besides research and teach, right? Breaking those down. So I understand when people are going through pivots that it's not as simple as let me pick up this job search handbook or let me call a career coach. Sometimes there's emotional work that has to be done. Um, there is rediscovery of self that has to be done because we're evolving and something new is calling out to you. Um, and it can be scary. So that's, that's how that kind of got started and how beyond the tenure track, um, got started. So what did, what was the reaction like from your, your network and your community? Because you say it's, it's very, you know, close knit. So then they see, okay, Fatima's is walking this way. We're going this way. What's happening? Oh my God. <laughs> yes. That is the best way to put it. We're walking this way. She's going that way. Um, I would get a lot of phone calls from grad students who were like, how'd you do it? They were afraid. They were scared. 
you know, I can't tell my advisor because if I talk to my advisor about it, they're not going to, they're going to think that I'm not taking my studies seriously. Um, or they might lose interest because, you know, these programs I said are very long. The mentoring relationship is really important. These are people who are helping to, your mentors are helping to shape your ideas. They're helping to open up doors for you to publish or to speak on panels. Um, so, you know, you can imagine if you're telling the same mentor, Hey, I'm thinking about trying something else, or I'm not quite sure that this is for me, then it's like, well, they're busy. They're, they may, they, you know, they may, it's not that they all are, but they may be thinking, well, if she doesn't want it, I'll take my energy and use it for these other students who do. Right. And so that, that was a concern. I think the Academy still has some of that in it, but it's working its way out of that. Um, so yeah, I hid, <laughs> I hid for a while. <laughs> like, so the thing is, it's a close knit community, but it's also not in your face, right? I'd already graduated. So I wasn't having to show up to things, but I did live in a town where a lot of faculty members live. So in some ways I hid, honestly, I just needed to figure things out for myself. I didn't want to be persuaded by anyone. And I also didn't want to carry the weight of other people's disappointments. Um, and I didn't have the answers. So I wasn't ready to share until I had at least a little bit more of the answers. And honestly, now that I look back at it, I, I'm, I don't, um, think that I made a wrong decision, but I definitely see how emotional health is so important to the decision-making process. Because as I said, I hid, well, what if, you know, at that time I'd been more accepting of this as an opportunity, right? A growth opportunity. Then I might not have been hiding, but I might have been sharing with whoever was safe people, right? Or sharing in ways that would get me even better opportunities than the ones that I got. And I, I got good ones, you know, don't get me wrong. Um, I did share with some people in my network, but I definitely went inward. And the Fatima of today now approaches challenges and is saying, okay, I know what I think and feel. Now, how do I go outward with this? How do I reach out? It's a consistent challenge for me personally. I'm an introvert. I'm an only child. I'm used to solving things on my own. Um, I don't think I grew up with a growth mindset. I think I was of the generation of the fixed mindset. So, and being a girl and growing up as a girl and right, do good and be good and be smart, all these messages, right? So I tend to go inward, but I consistently challenge myself now. And I think this is helpful for anyone, especially when we're in a time of pivoting and trying new things and wanting to do new things is, okay, I have my core solid. I might have all the answers, but how do I go out to seek answers or to seek support rather than try to figure it all out internally? Yeah, I mean, you've mentioned something that I think is on a lot of people's minds in terms of just where we are in the world. There's a lot of pivoting. I think a lot of people are tired of that word, pivot, pivot, pivot. <laughs> but there is a lot of pivoting. You know, people are, uh, people are changing careers. They're trying to redefine, um, what they're going to do going forward. Businesses are looking at the way that they operate, how they they can be productive, um, you know, and sometimes the employees are saying, well, we don't really want to come back to the office. Could we have a conversation, <laughs> you know, and what, what is your advice for the way that we look at productivity and I guess in a sense, sort of um, defining what success is? Yeah, I, you know, the two of those go together. So I think there's productivity has been defined in my view. It's very, a very masculinist framework. So we hear things like grind, you know, hustle culture, 
um, this kind of like no sleep until I'm dead, right? All of these things that, and you know, that's also very American. I think in a lot of ways, it's like always trying to secure the bag, right? This is the idea, um, that's out there. And I think even companies, so their version of this looks like, um, and people are going to, they're not going to like me for saying this because so many people love this, this framework, but the kind of lean, lean operational principles are like lean six sigma, right? Where operations in corporations, they're really trying to be efficient, but in that the format or the framework that they're using for efficiency really strips out humanity. Um, so in some of my other life and some consulting work that I do, I shouldn't say my other life, but some of the consulting work that I do for organizations and companies, a lot of it um, has tended to be in the healthcare space, but we'll see where organizations are condensing or they're um, being acquired or just immense change, right, within companies and within organizations. And one of the core things that that kind of trails along is, well, what do we do with our people? How do we merge our people and how do we support our people? But what we're seeing is these frameworks for productivity that companies are using to manage workflow, um, when workers are on shift or off shift. And that's everyone from physicians, nurses, down to, you know, line staff and everyone. So, and that's just one example, right? There's other types of um, companies that use the same framework, but this operational framework that has us trying to be so lean also is like, having people have to shift on a daily basis or a weekly basis in ways that don't honor the person to person relationships in the workspace, um, the needs that people have for some level of consistency in their work and in their schedules. Um, and then at a high level, productivity is about what we produce, right? Our outcomes. And so the ways that outcomes are being measured, I think is having a direct impact on the worker, whether C-suite worker or lot worker. It doesn't matter. Um, we're all being asked to do more often with less resources, but also with less like authenticity and the way that we work. So a lot of people, and this is Africana woman. So a lot of us are in companies or in positions where we may have to play like a dual role. We can't bring kind of our full selves into the workplace. You know, we're having to do a, a certain kind of professional speak as women because we want to be heard and be assertive in what we know, but we also know that we have to manage our tone a certain way or our dress a certain way or how we show up in a certain way. And so there's all these, all this energy being expended just to be a high performing worker, let alone to actually produce the outcomes that your company is looking for, your organization is looking for. And so the, this is a long way to say, I think productivity needs to be redefined. Productivity as we know it has been based on these, you know, efficiency models, things that come from the manufacturing and machine era that come from neoliberalism and capitalism and in a lot of ways, masculine. They're about the doing, right? So much about the doing um, and very masculinist frameworks. And so it's killing us. You can read reports about burnout. It's not just because of, you know, COVID and post-COVID world. People were burnt out before then. COVID was just the match, another match in the fire, you know? So we're seeing people talk about burnout. We hear, um, what are they calling it now? It's like the great walkout where people are deciding just not to return to work because they don't want to be in the conditions they were in. Um, we've, as a society, we've asked a lot of working people. Um, we've asked a lot and I don't think we've provided great frameworks to help them. And so what you tend to see as a solution is how can we calendar better? How can we do time management better? Right? So companies and even entrepreneurs themselves will have workshops on how to manage your time and how to set goals. And let me tell you, I do that. It's important. I teach it. It is important. But if our foundations of understanding what does success mean here, 
What does it mean to me? So there's the organizational, what does success mean? And then there's a the personal, what does success mean? And really, I think it's success, but I also want to say just accomplishment. What are we trying to accomplish? So I think when we tag the word success, we start to put all the feels around it. And sometimes we just need to say, what do we want to accomplish here? What do we want to get done? What, what impact do we want to make? And work from that. Um, and then also ask the question, how do I want to do this? Right? How do I want to do this? So not the mechanics of how, but what is the experience of doing it? Right? So I can become a seven figure entrepreneur. What is the experience that I want on the road to doing that? And then honoring if that means like I don't want to hustle day and night all the time accepting that, that that's, that's not going to be my path to it, right? That's me. I'm accepting that that's not, that's just not going to be my path to it. I can't sustain it anymore. Fatima, I have burnt out twice, not even once, twice, you know? Um, and I think, well, let me even think what really led to the burnouts. One, there was, I mean, there was a lot of work to do. Um, but I think also I allowed myself to be abused, uh, in a sense, right? Because I was running away from, you know, my traumas and all of the things that, um, that I didn't want to face and didn't want to heal, right? I was running away from, um, I ran away from a whole city <laughs> and the judgment that I was, uh, I imagined I was getting, you understand? And so then I put myself in situations where I just said yes to anything, right? Um, the first job was a, um, a factory that really run 24 seven. And I was, um, the office manager, but then at some point ended up being like the line manager as well, you know, but it was just like allowing, allowing my supervisor to just put things on me and just accepting it as, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I can do it. I can do it. And just taking on too much burnout first time. Second time, it was um, in the hospitality industry, um, six days on, one day off. Um, mm. I was the manager and I literally, ha I was on call, even though maybe I had the, that day off. I was on call 24-7. Um, I, I was the only one that had... Uh, access to certain rooms. So I would have to go and open like the storerooms and da, 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 you know, and it was just, there was no, um, I didn't put boundaries or think about what do I want to, what, what is the quality of life that I want and to be able to articulate that to the people that I'm working with and not just accept things. Cause they were just like, Oh, she said, she, you know, she, she will always say yes. So let's just give her more and give her more and give her more <laughs> until she burns out. <laughs> so, you know, I burnt out twice and I, I really, really do understand, um, understand where people are coming from when it comes to burnouts and how, uh, how frustrating and I guess also difficult to kind of accept that that's happened to you. <laughs> because why? You're always, why? Right. So this yeah. is the rub. Uh -huh. Why? Mm. Why do we, why do we find it hard to accept that it's happened? Mm. I mean, I, yeah. Yeah. What do you What do you think for you? For me, like I said, because I was running away. So until I stopped running away and began to um, face just my own healing and began to really, um, you know, do that inner work until I was ready to do that. Then I wasn't ready to face anything else because then at the, I think at the time that I burnt out, I just felt like my body had betrayed me. 
because mm-hmm. you know the the burnout was more um like my body just stopped it, like it was too much <laughs> you understand so then it, it then at the at the time it happened it was more of my body has betrayed me and it's not allowing me to to do what i think that i want to do but then later on after the healing and all of that has happened then i'm like okay like you really had zero zero boundaries gal <laughs> Like right? I mean, zero. <laughs> but it's so it's that right it's the zero boundaries and you know for people who may not be aware of like even what you mean when you say healing and when I say emotional mm. health it's mm. the running away comes from somewhere right so it might be self-acceptance so I'll use myself as an example just realizing that I do things a way I do them, right? I'm not saying I'm the only one who does them this way, but I would spend so much time comparing myself to entrepreneurs who seem to be doing really well, making money, their brands and platforms growing. Some people that I started with that I was like peer and peer masterminds with that have since like exploded and really, really grown and kind of comparing myself like, why can't I be as, you know, hustle as they are and outgoing and, and keep that momentum. And trust me, I am outgoing. I just, I had to accept the way that I, the way that I do things. So what I've come to learn is like, oh, my productivity doesn't look like outward in these ways. It's in these ways. So for me, it's writing and publishing, whereas for someone else and, and speaking as well, but for others, it's the, the platforms and the, the size of the platform or whatever it is. But self-acceptance being the base of that, that I have my own way, my own path, my own timing, right? But when we work against that, then where that's where the burnout comes because we're trying to fill shoes or do things that are not in alignment with our work, our timing, our voice. And I think it's also suppressing because when we're not accepting ourselves and we're not actually looking at what do I want, this is one of the first coaching questions I ask people, what do you want? What do you want? When we can't sit with that, especially in transition moments, especially in pivot moments, when we have a hard time answering what do we want, then that's where you sit. You sit in that for a while because being able to tap into myself enough to say the thing that I have been doing, it was good. It paid me well. It's decent. Maybe it wasn't so great even if it did pay me well. But something is uncomfortable here or something needs to change here. That's a big, um, it, it can be challenging to do, right? Because it's like, well, I should just accept this because it's good and it's here. I'm paid well. It's prestigious. And why can't I just like it? And maybe the nudge, the things that aren't really feeling good or working well is like the spirit's way of saying it's time to make a move. It's time to shift something. Even if it's not shift to a whole new job or a whole new company, it might be it's time to shift boundaries. It's time to up-level your your professional persona to be the person who can speak up for what you need and communicate that. Like you said, articulate it to those who need to hear it and set those boundaries in a professional way. And so I think the burnout comes when we're not accepting ourselves, when we're not accepting of the shifts and transitions that are happening, not just externally, but within us. Those are the harder ones because those are on our own clocks, right? It doesn't matter whether it's COVID can, can start and end and do all it's doing. And you're going to have your own internal clock about what needs to change and when it needs to change, right? So it's, it's almost being able to recognize that you have agency to, to want something different and to also make steps to seek out the something different. And I think that is one portion of where burnout comes. And the other one is just performance, right? So many of us are still performing. We're doing above and beyond. Or if you understand what I mean, the come from, our how we, what we bring to our work is not from a place of fulfillment personally, 
um, already, right? So sometimes we're looking for the work to be our accolades and fulfillment. And that particular come from will have you in burnout because a company will continue to take from you. Even your own company will continue to ask more of you. Your own ideas will pull at you. So there's something about also being able to, I think it's like a settling in, in a way and pacing ourselves, um, and realizing that our worth and our value is not based particularly on our output or our performance. Yeah, I, I agree. I think like, like you've said, I think a lot of people have been conditioned to, to expect like, you know, whether it's, um, you know, people telling them that, Oh, you've done amazing because of this output, you know, they're always wanting that, mm-hmm. um, validation from their output. So it's like, I need to, I need to do more, do more, do more so that I can get this hit, like, <laughs> like yeah. a dopamine hit of, Oh, you did good. You did good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and to be able to, really just detach yourself from um from the things and um your work and just be able to answer who are you you know when you don't have when you cannot say um you know your job you cannot say a role like mother or anything like that but just be able to answer that question who are you and then what is it that you want? I think that is such a powerful place to start with that inner understanding and then accepting and healing. Yeah. Yeah. And we need guides for this or Mm. people who walk alongside us. Right. So Mm -hmm. I think about friends of mine who in their own journeys of becoming, right? Were able to walk alongside me in this process. Coaches that I've had that were able to call me forward, right? To the next stage or to sit where I was to think and journal through and envision through, right? And create a new, just allow, not even create in some spaces, it's just allowing a new identity or allowing a new iteration of self to emerge, you know? Um, and so for me, this is, you know, this is one of the reasons I think I I told you about this last year, I created the genius retreat. So I wanted, it's billed as a planning kind of goal setting retreat, uh, for high achievers. But the reason I, I did that is because I know that high achievers are always thinking about the next goal. And while it's important to, I think goal orientation is fine, but while, while it's important to have that, it's also important to check in with who am I now? What do I need now? What is my vision for myself in this next time, you know, frame that I'm planning for? And so often people, when they start their time management planning and goal setting kind of work, they're thinking about how to tackle the project. And my way is to ask you first, is the project even worth it? Is that, is the project even where you're going right now? The one that you came in the room thinking you wanted to goal set around, is that even the real project? And so people, they're scared by this, but they love it. When they come to my goal setting retreat, we spend a good portion of our time doing some exercises that have us really envisioning who you are and what you want. And a lot of people don't create space for that. They don't create space for it. And it's hard to do on your own because we'll shrink back. We'll often shrink back. So you need a coach or friends who can support you to kind of keep you moving forward and envisioning who you are and where you want to be, even if you haven't been there before. I'm so happy you said that because there's still a lot of people who don't believe in coaches and, you know, just getting that extra support. They just think, oh, but why does this like, is this person really going to help me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I am so glad that, you know, you, you said that. And I'm hoping that if you're listening and you are at a stage that you know that you cannot go any further alone, then you will then take that next step to 
find the coaches or find within your, your, your inner circle, the people that can help, you know, get you to the next level of where you want to go. Yeah. Fatima, all good things must come to an end. (laughs) But this has been so good. Okay. Um, Fatima, let the audience know how do they get in contact with you? How do they find out what you are working on? Do you have a project maybe you're working on? How can we support you? Um, that's really great. Thank you so much. Well, one, um, one place I am on LinkedIn and Instagram at Fatima PhD. So it's Fatima with an H F A T I M A H PhD. So you can find me there. And I'm really right now I'm kind of, I'm building out what the new or the next genius retreat is going to look like. And I'm really interested to hear from high achieving, high performing women who are trying to figure out for themselves, what does success and productivity look like while maintaining their health and balance, right? So that for me, I'm really interested now in having conversations with women who are in this position. They're used to going and getting and doing and achieving and will always be that, but also want to find or have already found for themselves ways of managing the rest and the play along with the doing and the work. So my Instagram and LinkedIn handles and thegeniusretreat.com. Yay. All right. I have had a fabulous time talking with you and just catching up and just seeing you. Like we spent so much time and then it was just like this this gap. So it's been like so good to just yeah, share this time and this space with you. I'm so grateful that you came on the Africana Woman podcast and just shared all of the goodness that is you. So thank thank you. you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Today you are getting homework. In fact, you might get homework here on out. (laughs) Dr. Fatima said, ask yourself these questions. Number one, what do you want? Which means be clear about your big picture. Number two, What do you need to shift? Remember, it does not have to be a big shift. Small changes are okay. Number three, who are you? You cannot say titles, roles, or accolades, but when you get past all of that, who are you at the core? When you have written down the above as honestly as possible. That's when I recommend you should start tackling goals and other tactics you can use to achieving success this year. These are the kinds of conversations that we will be having at the Africana Woman Retreat where we will go through our signature program called Know Your Purpose. We are inviting you to place yourself into a new environment and give yourself time to really examine who are you and what do you want. To find out more about the retreat, visit AfricanaWoman.com or subscribe for our bi-weekly newsletter. We love to give people their roses whilst they are still here. Please find Dr. Fatima on Instagram and tell her thank you and what you learned from this episode. You know, that's my playground too. (laughs) So you can find me at Chulu by design. Tag me, tell your friends about the Africana Woman podcast. And we just want to hear from you and hear what you took away from this. Okay, talk to you soon. Thank you.